Welcome to Top Shelf at the Merrick Library with your host, Carol Ann Tack. Welcome to Top Shelf at Merrick Library. I am your host, Carol Ann Tack, and I thank you all for joining me. Listeners, for today's episode, we are going right down to North Carolina with today's guest, Scott Blackburn, and he is here to talk about his debut novel, It Dies With You. And there are so many great reviews for It Dies With You. It came out earlier this year, so they are everywhere. But I love this one from Tiffany Quay Tyson. She's the award-winning author of The Past Is Never, and she says, It Dies With You is a satisfying gut punch of a story. It's gritty and surprising. The small town Southern mystery is populated with big characters that make this novel truly special. I'd happily spend more time in this world and I can't wait to read whatever Scott Blackburn writes next. And man, I could not agree more with that. Scott Blackburn, thank you so much for taking the time to join me and the listeners of Merrick Library's Top Shelf Podcast. I am thrilled that you're here. I'm thrilled to be here, Carol Ann. I've been looking forward to this. I do want to introduce our listeners to you since you are a debut author. Scott Blackburn is an English instructor and a 2017 graduate of the Mountain View MFA program. He lives, as I said, in North Carolina. And when he isn't writing and teaching, he enjoys training in combat sports such as boxing, Muay Thai, and jujitsu, in which he holds a black belt, which also explains some things about the main character of the book, Hudson Miller. And we'll get to that. But Scott, thanks again for joining me. And if you would, please tell listeners about It Dies With You. It Dies With You is the second book I wrote. I had a, I had a previous novel that I wrote that did not make it out there. And that's a very normal story. Mm-hmm. And usually authors you meet, they'll tell you, oh, I had three or four before the one. But It Dies With You, it's a novel that came to me fairly organically, which is not normal for me. I really struggle sometimes with fresh ideas. And I was having a conversation with one day with a guy and he, he made the statement about his father, who was a, a bit estranged about some of the things he was involved with and some of the uh, prejudices he had and just some of the terrible attitudes he had. He's like, you know what? All that dies with him. And I was like, man, that is powerful. So I started thinking it dies with you. So I actually had the title before I even had a book. And I started to think about this strange relationship this this guy had with his father. And um, what I landed on was like, what if you had a parent that you talked to maybe once or twice a year and it was very strained but you surprisingly found out they left you a significant amount of money or a significant inheritance. And and that's what this book is about. Hudson Miller inherits a salvage yard worth probably over a quarter million dollars. If you, if you take all that scrap metal and the property it's on, he inherits that and he doesn't know what to do with it. Really. He's down on his luck. He's a boxer that's been suspended from the sport. So he doesn't really have any choice, but to at least try to run it for a little bit until he can sell it. And so he moves back home. And when he gets there to run the yard, he's in for a lot of uh, surprises. Uh, he's, they start finding things. And, uh, and at that point, you know, his father had been murdered and that's why he inherited it. He starts to wonder, you know, I wonder what really happened because they don't know at that point. And then it kind of leads to another investigation that a local girl's doing for her missing brother. And that's where you get that third character. And the, the second character being the guy that worked for his father at the Savage Yard, Charlie, who was my favorite character to write. So you have a trio, a 70 year old guy, 29-year-old boxer, Hudson, and then a 15-year-old girl that creates... Uh, my editor says it's like only murders in the building, except <laughs> in the junkyard. I said, uh, 
That's a pretty cool compliment. I will gladly take that. That's Because right. they have such a good dynamic. It is exactly right. The book unfolds in all of these layers. I am really kind of floored to hear that the inspiration came from you taking what your friend said. And, and how soon after you got that inspiration, was it sort of gangbusters and you just started writing? I think I started writing fairly quickly. I didn't plan anything out. I wrote a few notes down about where it might go or some things that might happen, but I, I sort of dove right in. But I'll tell you this, I stayed on the first maybe 10 or 20 pages for months and I didn't move forward. I wanted to believe in the character and where it was going before I committed to going through the book. So I would say from the time I started, it took a couple of years to get out. And I had uh, some guys in a writing group about halfway through that I joined that really helped kick me over that finish line. And that was that was very instrumental in me getting this done and, and doing it at the quality I wanted. What we have, the readers, is this finished product that is just every single layer. There's more. It gets deeper and deeper. And before you know it, and it's not a long book, but I remember thinking as I was, I don't even know, I want to say it was like, I think I marked the page. Oh, yeah, here it is. I marked it in my book, 159. And I wrote, what is going on? (laughs) (laughs) Because all of a sudden, I'm thinking, how did Scott get us here? So Hudson Miller, I think he's great. I really like him. You give us a different kind of guy here because as you mentioned, he's a former boxer. He is, um, his career is on hold at this time. Love that you do the slow reveal to explain why he's working as a bouncer. Obviously he needs money and you talk boxing in this book. You write these fight scenes and I don't want to say they're fight scenes because it sounds sort of trite because they're so well done. And it kind of reminds me of S.A. Cosby, right? When he writes a car chase scene, (laughs) you are just, you feel like my heart starts pumping. And I felt the same thing with your fight scenes. I felt like, oh my gosh, what? I don't know how you do that stylistically. Is that hard or easy to write? And how do you know, pardon the expression, it lands? (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah. So in that book, there there are a couple, like one is in a flashback and one is is sort of near the beginning and they're not like violent fights. Not at all. Um, I'm trying to think if I've ever written anything I'll consider straight up action scene. And I'm not sure I ever have or have not done it well. There is some action in the book, but it's not your traditional shootout or a car chase necessarily. There's a little bit of a car deal going on later, but I feel like writing it the way I did from a boxer's perspective was actually fairly easy for me because it's such a calculated, smart style boxing is. It's, they call it the sweet science for a reason. You know, it starts in your footwork and your hips. And so like I incorporate little details like that, which makes it easier for me because that's the way I was taught um, from the ground up. So I feel like when I put those details in there, I was writing a fight scene this week for something I'm working on. We can talk about later, but I feel like that part just came naturally. And I think it does because I know I can write it accurately where a lot of people can't, or at least they'll have to do a lot of research. I'm not saying a non-boxer can't write a boxing scene. They can, but I feel like just growing up with martial arts, training in a boxing gym, doing some kickboxing stuff. I just feel like that stuff kind of comes natural and I, I really enjoy writing it. Yeah, it was great for me. I could see it happening. The flow seemed right and they are not violent, but those particular scenes really caught my attention. And I, I was, I was worried about Hudson. I have to say there were a couple, <laughs> a couple of things. I'm like, Oh boy. Um, I said, I really liked reading about Hudson. And as you said, his father dies and he does get these two calls from his dad. He doesn't answer them. He gets a call on two calls on his cell phone and they have this fraud 
relationship. And then suddenly HUD is in charge of his dad's business. And the funny thing about those two unanswered calls is that as you read the book, they take on less significance. I don't know how you did that. Because at first, all I want to know is what was he going to say? What was he going to say? Even up to page 159, which I have my yellow sticky, or what is going on? It doesn't take on the same significance as the story progresses. I don't know how that, how you are successful at doing that because you were very successful at doing that. Um, That's about the last thing I wrote was the phone call in the entire book. It didn't even exist. Yeah. When I landed an agent and even my editor, I I don't think when I... Maybe by the time I sent it to my editor, it was in there. But I was thinking that it would just be some little subtle thing that kind of bothers him. Like, what was he calling about? And that was kind of it, because he never knows. He doesn't know at the end of the novel what what his father was calling about. Was it a warning of danger? Was it just to say, hey, if something happens to me, I'm leaving you this? Because in the book, he doesn't know until the lawyer calls. Mm -hmm. It's like, hey, uh, you got an inheritance. But I don't know. I just had a feeling that end of that first chapter, which was about the last chapter I wrote, needed that. So you wrote the book without the first chapter. Well, as my editor says, most people begin a book in the wrong place. Correct. I know before she got it, my second chapter was my first chapter, but the second chapter opens with a phone call. And in the back of my head, the whole time I was like, don't start a book with a phone call or a dream sequence, right? Mm-hmm. And I think Eric Pruitt, a fantastic Southern author, Eric is the one who invited me to be in a reader group. And when I got done with that first draft in the group, I think he pointed it out. He's like, you know, you can't start the novel this way. <laughs> I was like, all right, all right. I'll start it at, at a bar and uh, see what Hudson's up to and go in that way, which, which I had fun with. But yeah, so uh, yeah, I actually wrote that as one of the last chapters. I think I might've written something in the middle later on, but that was one of the last chapters I wrote, because originally the chapter I kept rewriting and rewriting when I first started this novel was chapter two, the phone call chapter. And so that, the yeah, whole it's weird how that happens. So weird because the phone call is that hook that just brings us through the rest of the book. And then at some point, we're not that concerned about it anymore. It becomes right. less significant. So I really, kudos to, to doing that. Bud talks about his dad's business. He says, stories about the yard, along with any fond memories I had of the place, had lost their luster over the years. The things that once wowed me as a kid were now intimidating. Rows of cars, trucks, and vans that had served as walls and top-secret hideouts where I would play imaginary games were now just barriers between me and some semblance of profit. So HUD's perspective changes. And man, that is such a, I think that's a very powerful sentence. And you feel for him at that moment because he's really completely all akimbo. He doesn't know what to do here. Right. I mean, he even says it's a burden I didn't sign up for, whether that's a good burden or a bad burden. You know, I guess I'll find out. But he doesn't know what to do. He just knows like, hey, I'm broke and I can't just say thanks, but no thanks. And it does kind of hit on that aspect that over the years, he kind of realized his dad was kind of an asshole, you know, like not not a good guy. And I think it's something as a kid, he just kind of ignored. And then when he got older and a little more wise, he's like, man, this is not a good guy. So some of that luster wears off, like just like it wears off Right. Luckily, Hudson has Charlie Schof. He is an employee of the yard. He helps navigate this new responsibility with HUD of running the yard. And HUD has very little money to pay him. So they work out this arrangement. And HUD 
HUD asks Charlie, what kind of beer do you drink? The good stuff, Charlie says, like there was one universal truth to what that was. Keystone, Charlie says. Keystone light, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think I just went through my mind of beers that like my buddies would drink in college when they were running low on money. And I was like, all right, it's either going to be Milwaukee's Best or Keystone Light. So I was like, something about Keystone. I just, I just got to go with Keystone. And then you always hear the stories of, hey, man, come help me move. I'll give you a six-pack of beer. Like, you know, people pay each other in beer. But, uh, hey, it works with this old Vietnam War vet. And uh, that just kind of kicks off. At that point, you, I think you kind of know, all right, Charlie's going to be he's gonna be a mess for the rest of the book. And, and he absolutely is. And that's why he's so fun to write. He's great. I love Charlie. He can be my sidekick anytime because that's kind of what happens later on in the story. And one of the many reasons I wanted to talk about this book is I must ask you, I have to talk about Tammy Leland's wife. (laughs) She is tough, hard, abrasive. And for some reason, as I was reading her, all I could hear was the voice of the actress, Julie Garner, who played Ruth on Ozark. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's every time she would talk on the page. I thought, oh, my God, I'm listening to like Ruth's voice. Talk a little bit about Tammy or Terrible T, as she's called. Um, She's complicated and awful. And for some reason, I wanted more from her. And I don't know why, but she was a very compelling character for me. Talk about her a little bit. She, I'll be honest, I would say out of all the characters, in the book, she is based on someone I know. Wow. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> almost, almost down to the name. But like you said, abrasive, snippy, just kind of mean-spirited. It's almost like it took someone like that, you know, because his father cheated on his mother when he was younger with Tammy and he ended up with Tammy, who was a neighbor of theirs. It would take a raunchy person like Tammy to put up with Hudson's dad for for the rest of his life, you know, when Hudson's Hudson's mother wised up to it eventually, but it it would take someone like Tammy to be gladly in this toxic relationship. But I'm telling you, I know a couple that are very, very close, just chain smoking all day, clipping coupons, mad at the world. That's Tammy, you know, but their dogs are very well groomed. That all was that. great. That was all of those things that you, your character development really knocked me out. And I hope we see her again in some way, shape <laughs> or form if there is a follow up to that. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So we've got Charlie and we've got Lucy and those two sort of form. They become the three musketeers for lack of Absolutely. a better explanation. The best sidekicks I didn't know that I needed. So mm-hmm. I really enjoy them. Charlie, the key stone drinking potential romance reading guy yeah that's right i forget about that sometimes oh my gosh i never forget about that i thought that yeah and hud's yep. good about it hud doesn't really he sees it he yeah takes it and he doesn't say a word which is that's nope. a good friend yeah 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 he sees those giant <laughs> romance novels when he the one time he visits his house and he just kind of like you know i'm not gonna say anything about this and you know let him ha- you know let him have his fun right there people read what they want when they want to and there is no <laughs> yeah, right. and i so appreciated that you gave hud the maturity to just 
Okay. It's cool, man. Whatever it is. So you've got Charlie and you've got that fantastic 15 year old Lucy who is as spunkadelic as they come. And I think that I saw something on Twitter. I don't know if I should say it, but is there a second something coming up with maybe all of them together again? Yeah. And that's the plan. I think since the book released, I've had a few false starts and a, and a few of those were, um, one of them was a sequel that it just wasn't the right sequel. It didn't even have Lucy in it. <laughs> so okay. that, but I started that actually before the book released. And after the book released, at that point, you have a readership and you're sitting there thinking like, they will literally kill me if I don't put Lucy in this book. And I liked Lucy, but I was just trying to think of a natural way. And at the time, I didn't have a natural way to put her in this next book. So I went on to another uh, standalone novel. I have a good idea behind that, that I'll revisit one day when the right story comes. And then recently, yes, I started a new attempt at a sequel and I'm feeling pretty good about it. And I'm just writing with a lot of heart and, and a lot of effort, really, just like trying to make these few chapters I do have pop. You know, I think I'm maybe five, six chapters in, but I was like, I really want to fall in love with these five or six chapters. And at that point, because that's what I did with It Dies With You. And at that point, I know I could carry it on. But yes, Lucy is more on the page. Charlie's even more on the page because they're there from the get go now. Mm-hmm. It's less of a slow burn. I consider it dies with you a bit of a slow burn, not slow, but I take some time to reveal some things mm-hmm. on purpose. Like you said, you're at page 159 asking questions that some people might address earlier in a novel. And I didn't want to do that. But with this novel, I'm having to become a better writer in some ways because I'm going to have to do it earlier because I'm used to writing this slow burn style. But now I'm like, you know, what? I'm going to hit them with something quick. Because I can't. They already I don't know, know if my town. heart can take it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see. They know the town now. We know the characters now. Right. So I don't need to build that up much. I, what I need to build is what's happened in the past year or so. Because this is going to have a massive ripple effect. This would be a national case. Mm-hmm. And even at the end of the novel, not to give anything away, but mentions like this is getting national attention. What happened mm-hmm. in this fictional story? So I have to consider that because crimes occurred that would gain a lot of attention. Yeah. Podcast officiant the true crime aficionados on YouTube. I mean, TV shows, because that's what happens to every fairly significant crime now. Right. right. My home county's had two or three cases on like 2020. And it's not a crime ridden town. There's just everywhere now. There's so many true crime shows. So I got to consider those things. And how is Hudson now? How is Lucy now? What is she doing? Is she, you know, is she training with him in boxing? Is Charlie good? Is his health good? I got to consider those things because, you know, you're a year later. And then what does Flint Creek look like now? Because I can't take him out of Flint Creek. No, I was going to ask about Flint Creek because that's obviously a fictional location. Yes. Now your friends, your residents, your local people in North Carolina, Mm -hmm. in and around your area, are they looking, you know, what do they think about being the hub of some nefarious activity. Yeah. Well, a lot of people, I haven't heard a lot of comments on that. A lot of people have been just talking about landmarks. Well, that sounds like so-and-so place, or this guy reminds me of this guy. But I think they all know, like, there are certain things that happen in Mm -hmm. towns like that Mm -hmm. that might get brushed under the rug or kind of ignored. So nobody's critically in local areas like, that would never happen in a good old town like this. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, that ain't true. But the book does touch on, and I'll continue to touch on this if I can finish the sequel, that there are wonderful people in these little towns, salt of the earth people. And there's also people that aren't so good. And that goes with any town, right? It's not just the rural South, right? So I think I took some bad parts of towns near me and I took some of the good stuff and the good people and kind of combined those all together. 
hearing what you're saying about the good and the bad and the people that are in the middle who they have this gray area. And I always think of that. Yeah. quote. I think of the quote from Better Call Saul when Mike Ehrmantraut says to Saul Goodman, are you morally flexible? I think that. <laughs> so I feel like maybe there is that. There's a lot of that. And for yeah. all of the good guys in the story, there are always bad guys. And I won't name them because of spoilers, but there's this one sentence. A long fight looms for the tired and pissed off souls who have the stomach for it. The ones wise to the reality that the worst people are often hiding in plain sight. See, doesn't that leave an opening for a second novel right there? That's why I was... <laughs> It's like you mentioned the long fight. So that quote means maybe there's that second installment. I had my fingers crossed. Um, the second installment, as I wrote here, of the Hudson Miller Chronicles. Yeah, I would. Hey, I would love it. My plan is to give readers a great sequel that's different, but also something that they appreciate. And I can't write it for the reader. I got to write it for myself. But at the same time, when I'm done with it, I'll know probably like they're going to like this. Or <laughs> if if I'm nervous about it, then I'm not going to be done with it. I want to get to a point where, I, where me and my editor are like, you know what? This is what readers deserve. This is your story. Um, this is the character story that they deserve as well. So that's why I think this second one's so hard on me because I do have a readership and I do have to keep some things in mind. And I, I do want to honor the people that like these characters and, and what's going on there. So sometimes that's a good thing when I'm writing and sometimes it's bad because I get in my own head. Right. And my editor's advice is stop thinking, Scott, just freaking just, write. Just, like, what does that look like? What does that look like? And I'm trying to figure out what that looks like for me. Yeah. I can't wait for the readers. And there is a lot that I'm leaving out question wise for It Dies With You uh, for obvious reasons. And any authors or book recommendations you would like to share with listeners? I'm staring at my shelf over here. I don't read a lot of books. That sounds weird. Not by choice because I have no time. And if I start reading something good, I have to put down and write. I have to. So I try to get through five to 10 books a year because I'm a teacher too. So I'm reading books all the time in class. I don't count those. I would like to read 20 plus books a year. I know people that read 50. I'm like, how? But um, we, you already mentioned Tiffany Tyson. Uh, I always plug her. It, it's mind blowing uh, how good it is because it's the only book, I would say one of the only books in the last five or 10 years that is a true nod to Southern Gothic fiction. Mm. And just for listeners, uh, the Tiffany Quay Tyson book we're talking about is The Past is Never. And I strongly urge that you guys go pick that up because it is it is fantastic. It kind of mixes that folklore-ish, almost like mysticism at times. I don't know. It's, it's fantastic. Not too long ago, the, the same release date as me as my buddy John Bircher wrote after the lights go out. We're classmates from college from MFA. Also, an MFA classmate of mine released in the past year with Crooked Lane, Ted Flanagan, Every Hidden Thing. Super good. That's like Northern Noir. It's very good. Huge fan of William Boyle, Bill Boyle up in uh, New York. Uh, there's um, an indie press book I picked up recently. I'm about halfway through and I'm really impressed by it. a guy named Dan Fogarty. The name of the book is Kill the Prince, and it's an actual MMA novel, and it's written very well. He did a lot of research, and that's with uh, Winding Road Stories, which is kind of a new indie publisher. And how about Peter Ferris? Have you read him yet? Yeah, well, Peter's... Not that I'm surprised, because people know who Peter is. Yeah, well, he's been on the show. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. The Devil Himself. Yeah. Great book. And he's he's like, I wouldn't say underrated. I think he's the underappreciated, because not enough people have read him yet. 
They will, especially when that releases. I might be wrong. It might have been Miramax that bought it. It's going to be a big motion picture. I, when he announced that on the show, yeah. I almost fell off my chair. Yeah, yeah. He's, man, he is super he talented. Is He's terrific. Georgia. And both his books are really good. Now we have to wait for that third one, which I think is out in France, but we can't get it yet. Or there's a whole, it has to be translated. There's a whole thing going on with that other book. Yeah. So that's one. And I'm actually reading a forthcoming novel from Bobby Matthews called Magic City Blues. And it's super good. I'm really impressed by it. But he also wrote Living the Gimmick last year with Shotgun Honey, which was like a take on pro wrestling, that culture, which is super interesting, especially if you're like me and grew up in the 80s and 90s. And on Saturday, that's all that came on was wrestling on TV. Then you start learning about these like low level matches where guys were getting their heads beat in for nothing and landing on tacks and ladders and barbed wire. So yeah, Bobby's a very good talent. And I think that he's going to be a big name. I know S.A. Cosby is a big fan of Bobby and Sean's pretty good at recommending books. He really, really, and boy, does he blurb the heck out of the ones that he likes. Yeah. I think we're reading together in a couple of weeks. Oh, that's so I'm pumped about that. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. great. And I was just, which leads me to where can readers find you for your upcoming events? As far as my events go, my website is scottblackburnwords.com. I'm supporting another author who I'm just starting to read. His publisher reached out to me. His name's Coley Holderfield, but he's with Regal House. Who I'm very impressed with. They did um, Val Neiman's new book in the Lonely Backwater. Hmm. That, I love it. Have you heard of that? No. Jot it down. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll email it to you. Okay. Yeah, please. Yeah, she read it at Noir at the Bar and also at the SEBA event I went to recently. And oof, man, she can go dark in just the right ways. Very good stuff. But oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm doing an event with him. I'm doing Noir at the Bar at Eric Pruitt's Bar in Hillsboro. A lot of people don't know, okay, well, unless they're on Twitter, like Eric is not only a writer with a big book coming out called Something Bad Wrong, and that's with Thomas and Mercer. He had a podcast with over a million listens called The Long Dance. It's about a mur- uh, the Lover's Lane murders that happened in North Carolina back in the 70s. So anything written by Eric Pruitt, man, he, he is just a pro. So his new book actually takes some of that podcast culture in the modern age and kind of blends timelines from this old murder, like similar to the one on his podcast. So that's another. And uh, I think I just gave you like 20 books. That's so fine. We'll put any, you want 30 more. <laughs> just kidding. Okay. We'll put all of the links to. I can never recommend enough books. And uh, that's the best part about being a writer is you learn about other people you wouldn't have known about until you get into that stage of, that of getting stage. your yeah. You just meet people in, in interesting ways. And I think that's been the most fun part of, of me becoming an author. Yeah. So you're on social media. They can find you on Twitter. And I think you're also on Instagram. So if people wanted to follow along because you're going to promote an event, they can find you in those locations. Oh my gosh, Scott, this has been amazing. Today's book, It Dies With You by today's guest, Scott Blackburn, is on shelves right now. I don't know if there's any left at Merrick Library, but you can put a hold on it or you can go to your local independent bookstore and purchase your copy there. It Dies With You is published by the fabulous Crooked Lane Books. And Scott, I thank you so much for joining me today on Merrick Library's Top Shelf. I hope you will join me again for whatever comes next. Hudson Miller Chronicles or not, whatever comes next, I hope you will join me. Well, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for the enthusiasm, the great questions and pulling for a next book. I am really hard. If you need me to call anybody, I will make that call. That's what I'm talking about. And listeners, I want to thank all of you for joining me today. Remember to follow Top Shelf at Merrick Library on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find most 
podcasts. For the latest and the greatest at the Merrick Library, check out our website at MerrickLibrary.org. Special thanks to Merrick Library Director Dan Chusmier, Assistant Director Diane Bondi, and the Merrick Library Board of Directors for getting us off the ground and on to the airwaves. Until the next time, remember to keep us on your top shelf. 